today on an all-new episode of the Enneagram Journey. www.creedthoughts.gov.www/creedthoughts. Check it out. Last year, Creed asked me how to set up a blog wanting to protect the world from being exposed to Creed's brain, I open up a Word document on his computer and put an address at the top. I've read some of it. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. You really never read my blog, do you? <laughs> it's Give Me Five Back? Oh yeah, I put in my blog this morning. God bless you, Ted, you're reading my blog. I've been reading your blog for years. You are like a god to me. That's why tonight is gonna be legendary, wait for it, dairy. Kids? No, uh-uh. The rule is no kids until you're at least 45. Do you ever read my blog? It's gotten a lot better. I mean, well, what is blog? It's just something that was cool like eight years ago. Still cool. Still sounds pretty cool, man. Talks a big game about how no one should ever have kids before they're at least 45. I would be interested in reading some of these opinions in blog form. When I talk about this table in our backyard, the reality of and I think it takes Aaron and I also creating a safe place for someone to feel comfortable enough to share their stories at the table and know that we're going to receive them and accept them and we're not going to shame them or make them feel bad for what they bring. And so it has become this little place in our backyard uh, where life can be talked about and it, we can be open with each other and confident that we're still going to be there when, at the end of the story. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Knowing is half the battle. And what do you know about blogs? Welcome to the Anagram Journey podcast with Suzanne, the Anagram Godmother Stabile. My name is Joel. Our two guests today, Lisa Qualls, Anagram 3, and Melissa Corkum, Anagram 7, started their work from a blog. And now you can find your copy of Reclaim Compassion, The Connected Parent, and Faith, Hope, and Connection in a store near you on Amazon or the LTM website. We're talking today about parenting, adoption, and fostering, and blocked care. Who knew what that was? I did not before this conversation. Check the show notes for links to Melissa and Lisa's podcast, The Adoption Connection, and their books, and so much more, such as Enneagram Boot Camp. That's what it used to be called. Clear your calendar the first weekend of August. Suzanne is finalizing the details, but if you want to explore some real good, good Enneagram work, the intersection where the Enneagram stances and Enneagram triads meet, you're going to want to be with the community in Dallas for what used to be called the Enneagram Bootcamp. Now it's just the flagship Enneagram workshop of the year. The name changes each year with the material. August 3rd through the 5th, Thursday to Saturday in Dallas. More details and registration will be available in the upcoming weeks, but step one is lock in the dates and don't make other plans. If you're outside the U.S. or you can't make it to Dallas for any reason, there's going to be an online option, and I hope you'll join us. For now, though, let's join Melissa, Lisa, and Suzanne on the journey. Melissa, how's it going? Long time no see. I know. I kind of planned this a little bit. I mean, some of it was just general scheduling but when we planned it i thought well this will be good because i'll be in withdrawal when we <laughs> yeah. i feel like you're record. in the other so this will feel like i know so this will feel like you know a slow <laughs> yeah. tearing away tearing away my goodness mm -hmm. we had a weekend we, we did well i gotta say we can you know we can schedule another time to catch up on things sorry no no it's okay it's just <laughs> when we were excuse me the topo got me uh when we were preparing for this conversation we're like yeah this is this time is going to go by quickly yeah. there's a lot to talk about and a lot to hear and so let's not waste a minute even though the other stuff wouldn't be wasted but yeah, yeah. do you notice how he looks he's looking at me did you note that <laughs> looking at everybody <laughs> well melissa and i both are talkers so um he may have to keep us all reined in you got it. I'll, I'll steer us as we're going. And I'm glad you all are talkers because that's, I mean, that's what I want to hear. Uh, me too. And I, we've already talked about the fact that we feel like you have so much to say. We're going to um, kind of let you take the lead 
and talk about all that you do, and we're going to respond, maybe, or ask questions, maybe. But we, we want to get as much of it as we can. And it's astonishing how much you have to talk about. So I'm sure we'll do this again sometime in the future. Yep. Show prep that we did as far as talking about what the, you know, how do you think the conversation should go? Yeah. And we both had the exact same idea and same direction. And that is if you uh, both first just start by kind of telling your story. Um, So Melissa, as you know, Melissa said that she wants to trump card since she's in the cohort. Uh, she wants to go first. So <laughs> you can tell your story. Is that, what, is that how that went? Uh, yeah. I thought, that, I thought you said that in an email to me. Tell everybody about yourself and, and your story. And then we'll go to Lisa and then we're just going to go on. Yeah. Well, super grateful to be here. I will do my best to say my story in a way that is succinct and hopefully makes sense to people who don't already know parts of it. But it started in Korea. I'm an adoptee. I was abandoned on a doorstep of a child home in a tiny Southeast Korean village, uh, South Korea, in case anyone's interested. People, people do ask. And by the time I was three and a half months old, I was in a home here in the States. I grew up just north of Baltimore. And back in those days, they literally put planefuls of adopted babies on airplanes with one social worker. And they asked for volunteers to hold us on the 20 some odd hour plane ride. So that's where my baby book starts with like me and two business people who got on a plane in Korea, unbeknownst to them, and ended up caring for a three-month-old all the way to Baltimore. When is back and in those days, Melissa? What what year are we 80s. talking? In the 80s. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I came home in the early 80s, and I have two younger siblings, both adopted. Both came home as infants, which in international adoption doesn't really happen much anymore, uh, but the oldest of the three of us at the age we came home was six months old. Fast forward 18, 19 years, and I meet my husband. (laughs) He says two things to me. This makes so much more sense now that he's identified as an eight. But on our first date, he said two things. He said, one, I'm looking for a wife. So if at any point in time you don't think you can marry me, just let me know, and this can be over. And secondly, I've always wanted to adopt. And so if you're not on board with that, we can also end this now. And he didn't even know I was an adoptee. That's how little we knew of each other when this conversation happened. And I remember thinking, I, I, I think I was a happy adoptee. I don't think I actually, I didn't feel permission to even say no to that because of our experience. And so I was like, well, you don't know this about me, but I'm actually adopted. And so I think I can't say no to that. And we got married young. We had two kids quickly by birth and through a lot of twists and turns ended up adopting uh, a little boy from South Korea in 2009 and then adopted three older children all out of birth order. All three of them were unrelated to each other in 2012. And so they were 11, 13 and 14 when they joined our family. And at the time, our other kids were let's go with like five, seven, and nine. And so that's the base. That's the foundation of our families. Five, seven, nine, 11, 13, and 14. Right. In 2012. So now they're 16, 17, 19, 22, 24, and almost 25. We have four still at home. We have a granddaughter that lives with us. Our oldest son is married and they have a son. Uh, My parents and I, and Patrick and me bought this house almost 15 years ago. Uh, and so that means that we are four generations in a house right now. And you're an anagram seven for the sake of, you know, reference. Yeah, just for the sake of reference. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Wow. So that's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Good job on the succinctness of that story. And, um, you know, I think sometimes it takes a minute for all of that to sink in for people. The the whole journey, like a, a part of 
<clears throat> sorry, a part of my hearing is still back in uh, at the ask for volunteers on the plane to hold us. <laughs> God, I can't imagine Suzanne Stabile on a plane <laughs> where they just come aboard with a bunch of babies for babies. me to hold. <laughs> Man, I'd sign up for that. The Reverend would pull you off the plane. Like we're, we need a different flight. This isn't. We want to be helpful, but this isn't going to go anywhere. And Lisa. Well, adoption has been a thread that God has woven through my life since I was a young teen. Um, as a young teenager, I became pregnant, and um, it was in the era sort of between maternity homes. And most teens keeping their babies. It was kind of in the middle there. And when this happened, my parents went to the church. They were Catholic. And they were advised to put me in foster care through Catholic charities in a town fairly far away from where I was from. And, you know, this is in an era where we didn't have cell phones. I mean, long distance was expensive. And so basically, I could have been across the country. It wouldn't have really mattered. Um, I went into foster care, and I did not know or understand that the plan was that I absolutely was going to give my baby to them to be placed with a worthy Catholic adoptive couple. And um, I fully thought I was going to parent my child for quite a while in the pregnancy until all my hopes and and the people I thought I could rely on uh, left me, fell away, and I was left alone. And at that point, I realized I really had no choice. And, um, you know, my parents had no intention of me bringing a baby home. And so I felt very trapped and forced into uh placing my son for adoption. It was not a willing or joyful choice by any stretch. It was a devastating loss and uh, a grief that was so deep and so unresolvable that I think it shaped a lot of my life. Um, It also was in that year when I was in foster care that I really came to know Jesus And my faith became very, very real. I feel like I was lost and I was found, you know, it was very profound, a turning point. And I've never looked back in terms of um, my utter dependence on God and my love for him. And uh, just a couple of years later, as I met my husband, we were seniors in high school and he was... uh, so solid in his faith. And I was still a fairly new Christian and I was so drawn to him. And uh, we ended up getting married as undergrads and um, had our first daughter just a few years later. We went on to have a total of seven children by birth. And during those years, my husband was in graduate school. We did all kinds of crazy things to, uh, have a big family and one very small student income during a lot of those years. Um, But after our seventh child was born, we knew we were, we were done. (laughs) You know, I'd had eight babies and, you know, we had this really beautiful family. I was homeschooling our kids. My husband's a professor and um, we knew we were done. And when my youngest was about three, I remember thinking, wow, I think, maybe God has something new for me, something else for me. You know, I felt like something was going to shift and change. And during that time, I thought actually that I was going to go back to graduate school, or maybe I'd become a midwife, which is something I'd been interested in for a long time. But instead, one of our dearest friends called to tell us that they were adopting two little boys from Ethiopia. Now, I... um, in, the, in this gap of many, many years, there's so much to this story, but I really was a very, um, I would say very bitter birth mom. I felt like adoption had pretty much destroyed my life. And I had 
this incredible opportunity. Well, I don't know what you'd call it. Maybe not an opportunity, but my son actually found me when he was 16. That was the most complicated, unexpected, beautiful, broken, very, very messy situation because his parents, for many reasons, uh, were not receptive to our relationship. So come all the way forward to my friend telling me that they're going to adopt. And I felt something open in my heart. And I thought, wow, I'm already doing this. I love being a mom. We have this beautiful family, so filled with love. We could do this. Maybe this is what God is calling us to. And so we began the process of adoption. We planned to adopt two little boys. We ended up adopting two little boys and a little girl. And then when we went to meet our children for the first time, we met another little girl and we returned a year later and adopted her. So I am a former foster youth, a first slash birth mom, however you want to call it, and an adoptive mom. And what I see as the thread through it all is just um, God's incredible love and redemption and just this incredible winding road that he's had me on through all these years. Wow. <laughs> that That's a lot. That is a lot. That is, a, it lot. is a lot. And I, there's a lot to talk about in that, but there's so much more I want you to talk about. I do want to respond by saying that I am glad that in all the beauty and the goodness of what you have both experienced um, in every way that you're each connected to adoption, it's still messy. I'm yes. 72. I just saw the first picture of my biological father. Um, he died a long time ago. And uh, I just found out that I have a living half-brother, but uh, the contact from me to him has not been responded to yet. I, and it's just messy. It's all messy. I have four children. They're all married. They all live here. We have uh, nine grandchildren. We're fixing to have another one. And um, it's just messy. And the idea, and, and my adoption was as good as it gets. My dad delivered me, took me home from the hospital. They adopted me, like the whole thing. They were fabulous parents. It's as good as it gets, and it's still messy. And I want to start off by saying that I love your work so much because you're not just tipping your hat to the fact that it's messy, but you chose to find out why it's so messy and what some of the solutions are. And so... Uh, I would love to hear the two of you talk about that for all the minutes that we have. Yeah. How did y'all meet each other and, uh, and form the, the adoption connection and where to go from there? Oh, and, well, and I'm sorry. And Lisa's a three. So, so that we've got the filter three and a seven, which by the way, great combination. And now I'll go. Yeah, it is. And it's been really helpful to know that I think in the work that we do together. So uh, someone sent me a Jamie Ivy episode podcast years ago before I knew anything about what a podcast was or is. And she had some fabulous people on there and they were all kind of famous, I thought. And I thought there are so many other stories out there that could be told. And if she can figure out how to have a podcast, I probably could too. And so I started one and it just had this adoption thread woven through it, even though that was not how I meant for it to start out. And I had been following Lisa for a long time. We were both like adoption bloggers in the day where blogging was like the main platform for moms who were stuck at home and needed an outlet and a voice. And she kept saying, I'm thinking about a podcast, but I don't know how I would start it. And I realized like I, I could start us a podcast and, uh, she actually was a guest on my podcast where she told her birth parent story for maybe the first time super publicly. You had really been more of an adoptive mom to people than a birth mom. And the more we started talking and getting to know each other, 
you know, what happened after all those adoptions for both of us is like Suzanne, you said, like things got really, really messy for both of us and in different ways and in some similar ways. And what we realized through the messy um, were a couple things. One was that there were, there was a huge gap in support and resources in what we really needed practically for some of the really messy things that had gone on in our homes. And, and the short and long of it is our kids came to us with an incredible amount of adversity that had happened early in their lives. Some of it in people's control, some of it not. Um, even our youngest son who had adoring foster parents, you know, we were his fifth primary caregivers by the time he was two and a half. And I didn't understand at the time what a toll that takes on the nervous system to try to attach to that many people and then be ripped away from them, you know, all those times. And the behaviors in our house were just so, so big. And I had stuff from my past. I had no, I didn't know the Enneagram. And if I had, if someone had told me I would look like a really unhealthy one in all of that stress, I think that would have been really helpful to know ahead of time. So I, I take a lot of responsibility for some of the chaos that ensued in our house. And um, I'll, I'll at least finish the story. The other part of that is we realized that we had, in all of that, we as moms had hit this wall of kind of lack of feeling in all that chaos. Mm -hmm. And there were, as we started talking about it more between the two of us and then more publicly that there were a lot of other people who felt the same way. And so that kind of brought us, we started the adoption connection thinking, we'll just start an adoption podcast together. <laughs> That's how God got us. And then here we are uh, four years, it'll be five years in August that the podcast started, but it has brought us into deeper work and our own transformation and work for other families that we just never, I think, saw coming down the pike. <laughs> Before we get too far away from it, you, you talked about a lack of feeling and all the chaos. As an anagram three and a seven, how do you differenti differentiate between blocked care and what, and what y'all are talking about and just your personality? Like I have a lack of feeling, unfortunately, but it's different. Does that, does that question make sense? Well, it does. And I, I'll add to that with my question and then we'd love to hear you respond, but my question is, um, Melissa, you talked about taking responsibility for a lot of the chaos. And actually, um, my question is, isn't everybody responsible in their way? But the thing that the Enneagram offers is a way to see what your part is. Along with the other th tools that you all offer, the thing I love about the Enneagram is that you can see yourself behave well and behave badly. And when you can name the reason, the understanding of yourself for the bad behavior, that's pretty great. And I know you're tipping your hat to that, Melissa. And I, I think there's a, like Melissa and Joel deal with feelings in the same way, according to Enneagram wisdom. But, there is a third way that goes with being a three. And that is to understand and feel the feelings and then try to not have those feelings affect how you move forward. And that's, that's what I'd like to hear the two of you continue to talk about as we move forward. And Melissa, I, because I know you and love you and have spent a good deal of time with you, I hear you say uh, unhealthy one, and I take responsibility for a lot of the chaos at that time. And I bet you have responsibility for a, a, a good bit in unhealthy one space. But also, my guess would be that what your uh, oneness was calling you to was structure in order that you couldn't get to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more I couldn't get to it, the more it looked unhealthy for me to try to force people to get there. Right. Yeah. Lisa, do you want to talk a little bit about how we even learned about what block care was? Like talk about that blog post. 
Yeah, but I wanted to reflect on something uh, Suzanne just asked about. I was thinking, you know, I didn't know the Enneagram back in the early days of our adopting. And, um, but I think deep in myself, one of the great struggles I was having is that I really had a strong identity as a good mom. Like I was a really good mom, you know, and I ran a good household, a big family, and I homeschooled. And yes, there was all the normal family stuff, but I felt really good about it. And then we brought home kids who had so much adversity and so much trauma. And in their fear, they were protecting themselves and functioning as well as they could, but the behaviors were big. And the family that we were, we were, we were pretty shredded. I mean, it was kind of a shock. And very quickly, I mean, I tried to keep us all in that box of this is the kind of family we are, and this is how we look, and this is how we go to church, and this is how we educate our kids. And there was no way. Everything just exploded. And so my identity, my way of being in the world as a good mom was just gone. And I think I didn't understand yet that um that's how I felt loved was through approval and through success mm-hmm. and all these things you know I didn't know that about myself I just knew I was used to going for what I wanted and doing well and succeeding and all of a sudden I had it was all out of my control and I had to learn an entirely new way of parenting but in the midst of that Melissa mentioned that we were both bloggers I started blogging way back oh go ahead well, I just wonder how old the children were. Um, our kids at the ages they came home were five months, 23 months, five and a half and 10. Wow. Okay. All from Ethiopia, all biologically unrelated, um, all from orphanages. Okay. Thank you. And then we did later foster a teen girl also for two and a half years. Okay. And Lise, how old were your kids by birth? when you guys came home from Ethiopia, roughly, like our how old oldest, was Claire and yeah, how old was your oldest? Yeah, our oldest daughter was 20 and our youngest um, daughter was, I believe four. She was four and a half or so, maybe, yeah, right around there. So she was sort of sandwiched between our two older adopted girls and our two younger adopted boys. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. That's yeah. very helpful. Okay. So anyhow, back in 2006, I started blogging and, you know, really back then that was how we did community. We didn't do social media the way we do now. We responded to each other's blog posts and that's how we knew each other. And I used to do these Tuesday topics and a woman wrote a very brave question. And she asked me, she said, what do I do if I don't like my child? And I was sort of like, whoa, I don't know that I can go there. Because this could get, well, it might make me look bad for one thing, but (laughs) also, you know, it could get really, really messy. But I thought, you know, that's a really honest question. And so I posted it and the responses just flooded in. So many responses where people started getting really, really honest, you know, like, yeah, they, they were committed to their kids. They were taking good care of them. They even loved them, but liking them and wanting to be around them was a whole different thing. And there were a lot of parents experiencing despair. Like, how am I going to go on? How am I going to do this? And so that was the very, very beginning before we even knew it had a name, before I knew there was something called blocked care. But it was the beginning for me of thinking something is happening in these parents who are struggling at this level because nobody can imagine they're ever not going to like their child. I mean, that's just, that's not who we are. That's why would we adopt if we, if we ever imagined we'd get to that point. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, after Melissa and I teamed up, we talked about this a whole lot. And then we found out that it actually had a name. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating how hard it is to say, this is really hard and it's hurting other people I love. 
and I'm trying to do the right thing, and in God's faithfulness, why isn't that working? And I, I think it requires a lot of courage to say to a community, the wider community, not necessarily the community that formed immediately around that person woman's question, but the wider community sees adoption as as where it starts. Now, y'all correct me if this is not how you think, but I think the wider community sees adoption as so generous and so loving and so kind and so, I don't know how you do it, and it's all so beautiful. And then when you pull back the curtain, it's we don't know how we're doing it either, and it's not always beautiful, and we have it now to do. And I'm hoping with my work this year that it will add to the conversations that you all have been having for a longer time about how very challenging and messy this is at a time when we have so many children worldwide, but here in the United States, who are being fostered and who need adoption and homes. And it's a very big topic. When you were talking there, you said, uh, you know, about your identity being that you're a good mom. And I can remember, I don't remember like the day or where I was or anything like that. I had said something similar from a different perspective. I was like, I'm a good dad. I thought I was a good dad. I was trying to be a good dad. It was very important to me that uh, when I was doing other things in the world that probably weren't the best, I was like, but I'm, I'm still a good dad. And then I remember kind of the day that I had the realization around parenting, not that, not that I wasn't a good dad, but that sometimes it doesn't matter that they're, you can be the best dad in the world and it's still really, really hard. And, and things still, there's not a, a justice or right or wrong to it. Uh, it actually kind of came up recently in a, in an AA meeting where someone was talking about, you know, they're doing all the stuff they're doing the things and life is still really hard. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, like it, <laughs> it is hard. And I, I think it's interesting to hear Lisa as a three and Melissa as a seven, because you can hear this baseline that they operate from where one is success and one is actually this seven idea of look at all of this opportunity and what happened to the opportunity and or, wow, this I, I don't really want people to know that I'm not successful because that's the three thing. All right, y'all keep going. I like I want you to say everything you can real fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, touching on that three thing, like I truly did not want anybody to know how bad things were. Sure. I mean, I was afraid to ask for help because I didn't want anybody to know. And besides, all of these people in our community had raised money for us. And here I was failing. I hardly recognized myself some days. I mean, everything changed so dramatically. So yeah, I think it was a, a, a bit of a, it was a very much a dismantling, I guess, of the life I had and who I thought I was. And it was, uh, it was painful. Yeah. I was very taken by the fact that you said our family was shredded. Mm. That's a, yeah. a very descriptive, really big word. And I, I keep hearing stories uh, where families are shredded from trying by, trying to do the right thing and make it work somehow. I don't know if you all notice this in your conversations with one another, but Lisa, do you ever notice that while you're feeling shame, Melissa is reframing? Oh, yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> and she has all this energy. Like, she can just make it. And I'm just like... I don't, I don't think I could say that. Right. I mean, there's a limit to how much I'm going to reveal about my failures. And Melissa's just <laughs> all out there. She's got it all figured out. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, it is. She knows I am more cautious too, because failure is unbearable, you yep. know, like, and she's willing to take risks. So she pushes me pretty far. <laughs> yeah. Y'all are a good team for this. <laughs> just one quick note on reframing. I realized this morning. I'm driving down here to the Micah Center, 
and I've got this uh, system I've got where after I drop off kids on this one route, I've got all my different routes. And I was like, all right, if I can get over, because traffic is so god awful, if I can get over in this one spot, then this is the way I'd like to go because it's quicker. However, and then I'm driving, I'm like, but if I can't, and I have to go a little bit longer this way, at least I get to stop over by the post office. And so there's there's always a good a, a good reframe and things as small as that and things as big as what we're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's much easier for you and Melissa to be hopeful than it is in my triad with twos, threes, and fours. Can you talk some to, and I, you, you, I love this, processing the gap between expectations and reality. So when you have the environment that y'all have and the story you have, and then we're talking about how hard it is, and then you've got taking care of yourself, taking care of biological kids, taking care of your spouse, taking care of adopted kids, taking care of the unit as a whole, like how how is there a hierarchy to that and how to manage and how to take care of everything and manage the expectation versus reality? Yeah. I mean, so there's so much wrapped up in all of that. I think the first question you asked Joel about hierarchy, I think especially because we both came from pretty conservative Christian backgrounds that we came in expecting that we could take care of all the people and back burner ourselves for as long as it took to get everyone transitioned, adjusted, and relatively stable. And I think part of the expectation, at least on my end, was that that would be, I mean, a super seven optimism, which said probably not that long. I don't really think I even had put a number on that, but it was like, however long it is, I'm pretty sure we can survive doing hard things for however long it takes. And I think I was thinking no more than like a year, maybe two. (laughs) And the thing is, is more of our kids are over 18 and legally adults now than not. And parenting's just as messy, just as complicated and requires just as much energy. And my story is that we hit, I mean, I didn't just hit blocked care. Like I hit like an all-time mental health low and it had to do with that exact thing, which was, I was pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. I had no idea what it was doing to my nervous system. I had no idea about the Enneagram and like my stress move. And it just got uglier and uglier and uglier. And so when we started doing this work together and we decided that it could be not just a podcast, but more services to families. We struggled a lot because, you know, we were like, we, we can't even figure out our own kids and their behaviors some days. And so how are we going to get people to pay us money to help them when there's no guarantee? Like, it's not like we can put like a money back guarantee that if you do steps A, B, and C, then your kids will turn out the way that you would like them to, or start behaving better than they were before you found us. So through all that wrestling, we realized that what we could do was help parents, mostly moms, but we're working more and more with with dads, that we as parents have to be the stable foundation for our families and that the needs of our kids can be so high that if we just pour into them, like the return on investment there is not always what we want it to be, but the return on investment for investing in ourselves is much, much greater. And if we can be the stable foundation and there's so much neuroscience around this and around how our nervous system affects other people's nervous systems, like that we cannot discount the, our own personal work, whether it be spiritual work, Enneagram work, which I think is closely tied to spiritual work, just plain, eating well and exercising, getting enough sleep, like all of that matters immensely. Um, So I don't know, Lisa, if you have anything to add to that, but it's so much easier said than done, first of all. (laughs) Absolutely. And one of the other things we've done for people is we've created community 
community where people can be honest and vulnerable with one another, because as long as we're all pretending everything is fine, we are no good to each other. You know, parenting is, I mean, I've parented kids I've given birth to. I've parented a foster daughter. I've parented my adopted children. Parenting is complicated. It can be super hard. And especially for some of us who have these really large families, I mean, the age range between my oldest and youngest is 20 years. So Russ and I have had children. We've been parenting in our home for 36 years. We'll have been married 39 years in June. And, you know, we, we need space where we can really hear each other and we can say, ah, oh, I get it. I've been there and support one another. And I think so people in our community and people who come to us, they get support from us. And we have some other parent coaches, including a phenomenal dad who's on our team, um, but they have each other. And we've given them this beautiful mm-hmm. safe space where they yeah. can support each other. When when you're talking, especially Melissa, it made me remember the countless number of times at workshops that people have gotten up at during Q&A and said, I'm seven and my daughter, it's most of the time it's women. I'm not trying to be sexist. Um, I'm a seven and my daughter's a... Actually, it's usually flipped. I'm whatever number and my daughter's a seven. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how do I help her... Blah, blah, blah. And every single time that I can ever remember, your answer has been, you've got to be the best, whatever your Enneagram number you can be to help her. It's not about helping her and her number, but you being healthy in yourself. And that just, I really, that came screaming back to me while you were talking. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the only answer, right? (laughs) It is. And it's the only answer I know. Right. We have to do our own work. Have to. Melissa and I always tell people you need a therapist and a spiritual director and a community around you. Yeah. Can't do it any other way. And I, I think you got to start adding that to your, I am going to feel that she, cause Suzanne always says we can, I bet it's in every single podcast episode from the last decade. Uh, (laughs) Everyone needs a spirit, uh, therapist and a spiritual director I'm gonna add and community. add community yeah. to it. Usually here we talk about that because we talk about the Micah Center is a place for solitary work that can't be done alone. So that's that's what we're doing here. But we, I am going to add that line if it's okay with the two of you. I'm, well, I'm pretty sure we took therapist and spiritual director from you. So okay, great. Consider it mutuality. <laughs> Although we, both, we both have one. And actually I'm in the process of becoming a spiritual director. So that's an exciting. That is a good thing. Okay, yeah. I want. I got some notes here. Um, one of the things I'm aware of, Melissa, is that five, sixes, and sevens, you and Joel, are dutiful. You do things out of duty and out of a sense of duty. I have, I don't know a lot, but what I have learned from you and from others from South Korea who have been in workshops or in cohorts that I've done is that you also are, are carrying a lot of dutiful responses to family. So you have four generations. So it's not just you and children. It's you and children and parents and now children of children. So here's the question. Is being is it the fact that you see it as your duty to do certain things, how much of your motivation is that? And I want to leave that on the table while I include Lisa and then we'll see where we go. Lisa, we don't have that. Our motivation comes from a different place than that. And it, uh, it then begs the question of the difference in what motivated the two of you. And then my third piece is, what is your motivation? What was it for making the choices that you made? And what is it now for doing the work that you're doing? And I realize I just asked 10 questions and that's because I didn't want to interrupt again. I'll start. I think it's really interesting to think about the the dutiful piece. I'm going to do a little bit more thinking about it, but on first pass, when I've told the story, it actually hasn't been out of duty. It's been this very seven and my husband with an eight with that access to the seven wing of like, sure, we'll do that. I'm sure it'll work out. Like when we moved in with my parents, it started because 
we were trying to do this housing project that required us not to live in the house we were in. And so we moved in with them out of necessity. And as a seven who hates the mundane and, and, and specifically hates chores in general, and my mom, who's a nine, probably a social nine and just loves to give and she cleans for therapy. And it was so easy to live with them. And we, we couldn't have done it with any set of parents. Like my parents were just really easygoing and had really good boundaries and let us be our individual selves while also like, we always just felt like they felt like we had the better, like they felt like they had the better end of the deal because they got to live with their grandchildren. And we felt like we had the better end of the deal because we got babysitting and cleaning wrapped up into the deal. And so it was, it started out as temporary and it was so good for everyone that we made it permanent. So it started with that and the, and the adoption for my husband was like this very logical, there are so many kids that need homes in the world. So like why keep reproducing them when there's already so many there. And I mean, if you could have heard us, Suzanne, when we put our application in to adopt our kids from Ethiopia, like he doesn't remember quite this way. So maybe this is a seven reframe, but I remember like sitting at the computer going like, they're asking us how many children we'd like to adopt and him going, I mean, just put down three, like, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, like that's probably the max that we could have in our home. And so we might as well do it all at once. Cause it's better to do it all at once than to like financially than to do it three separate times. And it was like, well, now they're asking how, like what ages we're willing to take. And we had already adopted a toddler and it was very, very difficult on our family. We had a history of doing high school ministry. We loved teenagers. All of our kids loved teenagers. And it was like, I don't know, just put like, we'll do whatever we can handle, whatever they need us to do. So just put three children, any age, any gender, anything. We'll just, we'll do do anything. And I was like, okay. I mean, that sounds, that sounds fun. (laughs) Wowza. I I love, you know, I, I don't know how many times you've said that one of you or both of you said, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it's going to be fine. I, I know. And you know what? And that expectation and reality, when we hit the wall, Suzanne, where things were not fine in 2015, I, like it devastated us because we didn't know how to live in a world where we couldn't make it fine. Yeah. Like where we couldn't get to where it was livable and, and we, we could just put up with a lot and we lived through a lot. And um, when we got backed into a corner where everything was chaotic, no one was safe. And we had reached out to every, literally every person we knew how to reach out to. Like we opened three social service cases cases on ourselves in 18 months and had social workers that were like, I don't, I don't know how to help you. Um, like we were, we had no idea what to do with it. Okay. I want to throw in something here that I, I know we're going to get back if I don't do it. And so I just want to say that there can also be chaos and things are not fine in homes where there are no adopted children. Yes. And I also want to say that there are times with uh, my biological children, they're all very different from one another. And there were some challenging moments when things were chaotic and I thought, I don't know how to deal with this. And nobody no mom I think or dad wants to say this kid's too much for me right now I I want not a day off I want six months off and of course you can't have it but you get to say out loud that you want it but people don't instead we put on this face of it's all great and Oh, yeah, we have, uh, I don't know, 11. I don't know how many children y'all have anymore. 16, 21. (laughs) (laughs) And and everything's fine. And I, um, I seem to continue to hear stories about lots of encouragement on one side of adoption for families to take more children. And then when things get chaotic, 
and there's need and desperation, then there's not a lot of support on the other side of that. And y'all are fairly honest about that too, which I'm very grateful for. The very good Reverend Dr. Andy Stoker was here this weekend and he popped in the office for just to say hi. And, uh, I was like, yeah, it's good. And, you know, doing this and this. And he goes, anything I can do for you? Like any way I can help? And I was like, I don't know, like tag in for me for like a couple of weeks and I can yeah. kind of just go away and handle some things. That'd be helpful. That'd be great. Outside of that, I, I don't think so. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I just wanted to chime in on, my, give my two cents on the whole dutiful bit. Mm-hmm. I think it is, and the two of you can answer this better than I can, the three of you, actually. It goes back to, I think for me, feelings and emotions trump duty for y'all. For Lisa and for, me. Yeah. Yeah, they for do. For twos and threes and fours. That feelings and emotions trump duty. And, you know, Melissa, when you were talking there, you talked about your husband being logical and like, okay, put this. And, and logic, the absence of the feelings and emotions. Yes, means that you're going to do what you got to do no matter how you feel about it and and you're what even if you're not dutiful you're responsible yeah so i'm I, responsible for this so i got to figure out a way to do it and then you can't man i can just find myself in uh average to below average one space right there of being sure. dutiful and because i have to right. and a victim right. and who you know yeah yeah anyway. well and i don't i i, I think melissa and i don't know if you felt this but i have I felt like, too, as an adopted child, there's not room that isn't doesn't have some hooks in it to question all of this stuff. I, you know, it's like when you're so grateful to have been adopted, then where what happens in all of these family systems where things are just really, really complicated? And people who should have answers don't. I don't know who those people are, but it seems like there should be people who do have answers. And so you two just got together and said, well, we're going to find some. And so I'd love for you to talk about the answers that you found. Well, I can comment a little bit about that. Um, when we were struggling and things were very unbelievably hard in our family. Um, I, we were able to find an incredible therapist, probably one of the very best in the country, adoption therapist in Seattle, Deborah Gray. And then I had the amazing opportunity to meet Dr. Karen Purvis from TCU and um, get to know her work and get to know her, which later led to getting to co-write a book with her, which is still, I still can't even believe that that happened, Mm -hmm. but we wrote The Connected Parent together. But um, what I think what is unique about what Melissa and I do is I am so grateful for all the researchers and the professionals and the um, really wise people who have helped us understand how to parent children with this degree of trauma and wounding and some neurodivergence and all these things. But what was missing in all of that was that none of them were living my life. None of them were afraid to get out of bed in the morning because we didn't know if we were going to make it through that day. And so what I think Melissa and I have done, I'm sorry, but Will you say that again? I want to make sure everybody hears you say what you just said. So please just back up. I can't hit rewind, but I need I need to. Because the integrity of the honesty of that answer, people will hear who haven't heard their experience yet. Okay, if I can remember, I think what I said was as much as I deeply value all that the professionals have done for us, none of them were living my life. I mean, I can remember going to bed at night and just crying and holding Russ's hand and saying, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, like we were hanging by a thread. I mean, I could cry just thinking about it. And I think where Melissa and I, what we have done, we bring this very real experience 
the real life of taking everything we've learned from all the amazing professionals and applying it to the very best of our ability and walking it out every single day. And I think that that's what was missing and the gap that we fill. The line that I wanted to hear again, along with what you said, was afraid to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I bet in editing I can just pull the clip and... Right Would you like there. me to say it again? No, no, no it's all good. Yeah, it'll, to get it out of yeah. bed. For you listeners, uh, go ahead and hang on one second. But what was missing in all of that was that none of them were living my life. None of them were afraid to get out of bed in the morning because we didn't know if we were going to make it through that day. But it's true. And now it's happened. Yeah. <laughs> when you say that, someone else is out there saying... Yes. Yeah. I didn't want to get out of bed today. And the thing that just keeps comes screaming back to me over these past few months, as we've had these discussions is just the uniqueness. And I think that's why there's no, I wouldn't, you talk about it, uh, with church a lot, how, you know, if someone hands you the laminated mm. 10 steps to get to heaven, whatever, like how you don't trust it. And that's out there. Like people are like, I've Absolutely. got the answers. I wouldn't trust someone as far as family stuff goes. They're like, I've got the answer for you. Here's what we did. And it will work for you. It's like, you're not me and you're not my kids and you're not in our situation. And, and there's no way it's working perfectly for you. That's the other one. In the, you know, when we talk about if there was another, to, as in, you know, man, I'm thinking about Andy a lot today. I love how we always like to personalize it. There might be another, person out there who is divorced, remarried, has this kid situation that I have, all that. Right. But they're not Anagram Seven or the son of right. Joe and Suzanne or living in Plano or also an alcohol like all the things. That's right. So what I love the most from what I've heard read from y'all and heard from you is it's just like let's let's ask the questions together. Let's find, like you said, solutions together in community. Not, oh, here's what you got to do. Here's, yeah, this isn't potty training. You, you, yeah. Oh my gosh, and there's a perfect example. Yeah, that's all different at two, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And I, I, but, and yet at the same time, y'all do have uh, uh, some suggestions that uh, I think people can kind of hold on to. And so talk about. Man, I don't know how much time we have. Sorry, I was just about to say, just to manage time, we got 10 minutes. Okay. I'm not going to say another word, I hope. But I would love for you to talk about blocked care. And, of course, we're going to tell everybody how to get in touch with all the work that you do. But I want them to hear you talk about blocked care before we just add that to uh, something for them to look into and look for from you. Please. Melissa, do you want to define it for people? Yeah, we've we've kind of talked around it. And so I think it lends itself to people maybe getting a feel for what it is. But it is something that happens in a specifically a parent's nervous system. It's subconscious, which is the most important part that we get parents to really reflect on. Like, this isn't because you're a bad parent. Like, this is your body's survival mechanism. And it happens when your nervous system is so overwhelmed that some of the parts of caregiving that we associate with quote unquote good and successful parenting become harder and harder to access. And so that overwhelmed feeling can be from COVID, like we all just are coming out of and are, have lived through and are living through something that was extraordinarily overwhelming for a lot of people. It could be behaviors from a child because their, their nervous system is overwhelmed. It could be a sickness or a lost job or a divorce. Like there are lots of reasons this happens and it doesn't just happen in adoptive families, but I think the rate at which it's happening is higher in the families where there's adoptive and foster kids. There was a time yeah. when with one of my children, 
um, if the phone rang, and, you know, it was before we had cell phones, it was caller ID on the phone. If it was the school, literally I would have a, what's that called? The, a panic, panic attack? No, <laughs> but that that thing, you know. A, Heart skips a beat? Yeah, kind of. It's a, I'll think of it maybe or maybe not. But I could feel it in my whole body just by seeing yeah. the number come up on caller ID. So I'd, I relate I, to that. Yeah. So I'm just <laughs> saying people, other people can relate to that too, if they know what we're talking about. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. And so it was the, the term itself was coined by Jonathan Balin and Dan Hughes, and they talk about it in a number of their books. And so that's when I first read about it. I put it together with some of the stuff Lisa and I had been talking about specifically that blog post. And I was like, Lisa, it has a name. And that, just took us on this journey and the short and long of it is is that once we know about it right like knowing gi joe knowing half the battle right then then there are things like it's not an easy fix but there are things that we can be aware of and there's small intentional steps we can do we call it nervous system care for parents that help their nervous system instead of being closed up and so self-protective start to open start to open up again. And um, we wrote a book about it. Um, And yeah, and and it's a journey, right? We say in the book, like, it's not a one, it's not like you read the book from beginning to end and you're like, oh, I got it. Like, Mm -hmm. this is it. But it it just gives words, you know, Dan Siegel would say, name it to tame it. It gives words to people's experience so they can realize they're not alone. So they can understand, like for those of us in the head triad, so we can like put some logic and understanding behind what's going on Um, and, and then gives people intentional things. And, and we call them practices because it's like spiritual practices. Like it's not like, oh, I do centering prayer today. And then like the thing that I want to change happens tomorrow. It's like, now I need to integrate this into my day to day. And it's the thing that keeps me open and available to my relationships instead of being closed off and protective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the gifts that we give people, especially for those of us in the heart triad is we really help people shed the shame. I mean, parents carry so much shame when they like, they can't understand why they feel the way they feel Mm -hmm. and they don't recognize themselves. And of course, some parents feel a lot of fear and some feel a lot of anger. And of course it all swirls together. But when we can name it and we can tell people this is what's happening and it is not about your character, your lack of faith, it's actually neuroscience and we can help you find your way back. And the Enneagram fits perfectly with that because of the reality of the fact that shame, fear, and anger are default emotions. So you feel that without even knowing that you're feeling it and then you go with it and they all three lead someplace that's not particularly helpful. Right. You talked about self-care uh, several times. Adrenaline rush. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There we go. <laughs> there it is. That's what I had when I, the phone number came up. Sorry. <laughs> I'd hate to have to edit me. All right. <laughs> no, that's staying in. Um, <laughs> speaking of self-care, one of the things, uh, I forget which one of you provided it, but you said un- under like spiritual practices or disciplines that, that you uh, integrate in your life, hand lettering. And I was like, what the hell is hand lettering? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> that was me. Okay. That was not me, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about efficiency. I don't have time for that. All right, yeah. I need to hear some about hand lettering, please. Just so I, can, I know what it is. You need to get on Instagram, Joel, but it's like the beautiful, it's like, it's like where handwriting becomes like drawing and an art. It's like, like Cal- calligraphy? fancy forms of, well, calligraphy is like a form of it, but there's, so much more to be had in the hand letterings. <laughs> the possibilities are endless. Maybe that's why I like it so much. But it's it's very visual. And Suzanne, I don't know if you're one of like people in the head triad like to catalog things and they're visual and oh yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And that's me. Like I can put up with a lot of auditory chaos and uh, my desk faces our bed. We have a bedroom office and I have to I, I hate things that have to be done every day like chores, but I have to make the bed every day now because I have to look at it all day. Yep. I've always loved making the bed every day. That's my one wing. I think it's such a great thing to do. 
Joel used to sleep on top of the covers as a child so he wouldn't have to make his. I've got a that is a that classic that. seven move. I, <laughs> I did that. I did that too. I slept in a sleeping bag on top of my bed when I was a teenager, and every morning I just shove it in the closet. <laughs> like I didn't want to waste time with making. Yeah, it yeah. there you go. <laughs> Suzanne, what would you want to wrap up the conversation today with? I would just say that I've discovered while I've been spending this year looking at trauma and family systems and adoption and fostering and all those things that one word that I keep using more and more and more that I didn't before is integrity. And I think it's because we live in a culture and you two are perfect numbers to do it. Thank God you don't where we dress everything up so that we can look like we've got it all together and everything is fine and then everything that's happening at home becomes a secret and the more darkness and secretive nature you have around the reality of the struggles that we have in our lives, then I believe the worse they get. So I'm so thankful for both of you and for your work and I respect it totally and fully and completely. And I recommend it highly to uh, not just adoptive and foster parents, but to parents. Because there is chaos in a lot of homes where there are only biological children. And we need to get away from how great it all is and talk about how it really is, so that we can build a community. Because a community built on dishonesty and a lack of integrity will never last. Thank you all so, so much. And uh, and like I said, we'll, we'll do it again. Because especially, I feel like, nibbles at all, all the things. Like every, yeah. there are several different things that could have spent 20 minutes on yeah. this one sentence or this one topic or this one area. Uh, so we we'll just got to get into it more next time. I feel like the whole thing was topic sentences for paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the outline now. Yeah, for, exactly. Yeah, for there a three-hour show. Thank you it's all been again. a huge honor. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, thanks again for joining us. We'll look forward to next time. We look forward to it, too. Thanks for having us. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>